0: This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in November of 2019.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Jeff Meldrum. He is professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. He's author of Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. He's a leading expert on Bigfoot or Sasquatch, the term he prefers, relict hominoid says he was once confronted by a colleague who declared, after all, these are just stories. And His response was, stories that apparently leave tracks, shed hair, void scat, vocalize, are observed and described by reliable, experienced witnesses. Hardly just stories. Uh, Jeff Meldrum will join us today to talk about evidence for relict hominoids in North America, what the existence of such creatures would mean. We're also going to talk about the nature of scientific inquiry and shifting paradigms in our understanding of, uh, of evolution. Uh, so, Professor Meldrum, welcome uh, back to the program. Well, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, we had you uh, here oh, a couple of years ago when you were in Logan for some uh, some presentations. That's I'd correct. Appreciate you coming back. Um, so, I, I, I could guess the way you got into this is uh, one of your areas of emphasis, expertise, is the study of
0: bipedalism. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's right. I'm I'm fascinated by the human adaptations for standing and walking on two legs and the timing uh, the pattern and process by which those those specializations have emerged in in our evolutionary history so it was always uh, you know an interesting question in the back of my mind at the very least uh could there be other bipedal hominoids still uh, extant today and and what would be the implications what would that uh, what would that mean for our uh, our understanding of our own our own history uh,
1: so um, the, this g- gets you into studying tracks right exactly. um, so tell us about that before right. we get into relict hominoids uh, right. tell
0: us a little bit about the study of tracks well of course uh, an important piece of uh, evidence is uh, the recovery of, of the fossilized traces of behavior, namely footprints. uh, And, uh, you know, for example, the very famous, uh, iconic even, uh, Laetoli hominid footprint trackway in East Africa that dates to about three and a half million years ago. One of the first direct evidences we have um, of that behavior of walking on two legs. So, um, you know, I've, I've written review papers examining fossilized hominid footprints around the world. And that, uh, that record, the understanding of that record, is growing um, uh, uh, with, with every additional uh, discovery. Uh, tell me about your first encounter with the, uh, a track. Right. Right. With with a creature that could have could have been a, a bigfoot or a relic, Right. Well, that's kind of what what drew me into this uh, formally, as uh, from an academic perspective, I uh, had the opportunity to examine a, a very impressive, a rather singularly impressive line of footprints. Um, it left little uh, room for ambiguity. I mean, either these were hoaxed or they were the real the real deal. There was hardly room for misidentification or misinterpretation. This occurred in southeastern Washington state in the mountains just outside of uh, Walla Walla, Washington. And it was a long line of tracks, 35-45 individual footprints cl- that, that we witnessed clearly impressed in the mud of, of uh, uh, early spring, uh, Well, still winter actually, in February. The snows had just melted back from the the um, lower uh, uh, foothill roads and uh, being largely unimproved, they make great tracking beds of, for wildlife of all kind kinds. And I was uh, taken out and shown these tracks, and uh, you know, literally flabbergasted. I mean, I was floored by what I was viewing because, from my perspective, uh, my my point of view as an expert in hominid bipedalism and and uh, associated footprints, I, I was in a position to, I feel, to very objectively and, and authoritatively evaluate this, this body of data. And I, I came away quite convinced that these were the real deal. And, uh, you know, had one of those moments where the hair literally stood up on my neck as I realized, my gosh, a Sasquatch really did walk by here just last night.
1: What, uh, tell us a little bit more about that track and why you feel like, uh, yeah, th- this was a,
0: a, a, large. That's right. They were relic Hondoid. Exactly. The footprints measured nearly 15 inches in length. Um, the stride was not, uh, you know, stride varies with circumstance. And in this case, it was, uh, I think, uh, based on the circumstances and our reconstruction of what probably occurred based on the pattern of the, of the trackway, it was, uh, walking fairly cautiously i think returning back up to the ridgeline into the trees um, it was the first weekend that a uh, you know that the the roads were passable uh, the snows had melted off and i suspect on that weekend there were there were people up taking advantage of uh, of those cleared roads returning down from the hills late at night and um, whatever whatever happened something caused it to make an about-face, do a 180-degree turn, began walking away. You could clearly see, given the outturned right foot, that it was glancing over its shoulder every second or third step. I suspect headlights bouncing down the, the road. And then it took off running, and the stride doubled in length. The footprints were abbreviated to the fore part of the foot, uh, its heel elevated uh, you know, in, in a running uh, stance. And, uh, uh, ah, it was just, I mean, you, you, could, you could imagine or visualize, um, as any, you know, tracker can, uh, from the sign in the ground, uh, what had actually transpired and, uh. The details were just amazing. They were so fresh. As I knelt down, you could in the in the moist mud, you could still see the minutia of the skin detail, the skin ridge pattern or dramatoglyphics was still visible in some of the footprints, and uh, you know all sorts of animate uh, features like um, pressure ridges and tension cracks and comet tails and and dragouts of the toes and so forth. They weren't just uh, simple um, rubber-stamped uh, imprints in the ground, uh, clones of one another. Each track had its own uh, personality, if you will, that reflected the, the subtleties of the interaction of that living foot with the substrate at that particular instant. Um, it was very convincing and very compelling. And, and we, we documented with photographs and with footprint casts, uh, plaster casts, these, um, examples, selected examples from this. And I mean, to this day, it's, it's one of the most impressive uh, pieces of evidence that I've experienced. Uh, how large would this creature have been based on the, f- right. the footprints? Well, a 15 inch footprint would probably put it, uh, in the seven and a half foot range, I would uh, estimate. Um, so probably weighing 800 pounds. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not a, <laughs> not a trivial creature at all. Um, uh, so it would have it would have been uh, would have been impressive to encounter firsthand. Mm. What uh, what evidence is out there?
1: Uh, so you you mm-hmm. encountered footprints. Right. Uh, there are other footprints. Sure. What uh, you know, people have heard sounds. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what what sort of evidence right. is there?
0: Well, my attention has focused primarily on the footprints because of my interest and expertise. I now have over three hundred examples of footprint casts, not only here from. North America, you know, associated with the Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but I have examples of the Russian almas, perhaps a relic Neanderthal, examples of the um, uh, Himalayan yeti, which may be a more uh, primitive or uh, or generalized ape-like species, a a foot that leaves a print with a divergent big toe, a thumb-like big toe, Um, examples from Southeast Asia of these smaller, Statured species like um, known by names like Orang Pendek, Ibu Gogo, and Dutu. You know, each each um, ethnic population has its own traditions, its own um, names to to um, signify um, this uh, particular creature. Um. what reaction do you get
1: when you—so uh, let's talk about public reaction. Sure. Like you're going to be at the Logan Library right. tonight, what, what right. reaction
0: do you, do you get? Well, it's it's quite varied. I mean, obviously people who will take off uh, a Friday evening to come and share it with me are, are uh, interested in the subject. There's a tremendous amount of interest and curiosity. I mean, uh, just like uh, the ape house is often the most popular exhibit at the zoo, you know, we're fascinated by uh, species that— bear close affinity to ourselves um, and so I expect there'll be there'll be um, lots of interest uh, frequently individuals um, uh, take the opportunity to share their own personal experiences the, oops, their own encounters or uh, uh, discoveries of, of sign footprints and or sounds in the night um, on a broader scale um the reaction has been uh, quite varied. You know, I I must admit I, I entered into academia rather idealistic, I guess, thinking that you know s- scientists belonged to a rather elite club of intellectuals who were above politics and and uh, were uh, objective and uh, and open-minded to new ideas. I I was disappointed to find that's not the case in the least. And even my own department uh, over the years has been a Something of a microcosm of that broader community with reactions spanning from, uh, as you might hope, uh, curiosity and, and objective interest and uh, encouragement to, to pursue a scientific question to, at the opposite extreme, what I can only describe as, you know, a visceral, almost emotional rejection of the very suggestion that such a, a creature could exist. I, I've I've had a colleague actually say um, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence you think you have. Well, I, we should be we should be pursuing, we should be exploring uh, on the basis of evidence, um, not rejecting things a priori based on some preconception of what can or cannot exist, because we're often surprised and and uh, um, uh, by by discoveries.
1: Now in the scientific community just to, to put a bow on this right. uh, there are some fairly prominent names who agree that there is possibility of
0: Oh of course hominoid yeah, out there mm-hmm. right. My book uh, my book is graced by a uh, uh, a statement from no less than uh, Dr Jane Goodall um who is not endorsing the existence of sasquatch but is certainly supportive of the um, search for the question uh, of, of are there other relic hominoids uh, around the world. The foreword to my book is written by someone whose name may not have the, uh, you know, the public notoriety, but, um, but certainly amongst my colleagues uh, carries much, much weight, and as probably the preeminent natural historian of our century, and that's uh, Dr. George Schaller. Who likewise uh, shares a, a very pointed interest in in this question and uh, and has been very supportive uh, of of my efforts to try to um, to pursue this evidence and to uh, disseminate it uh, to my colleagues and and to the public at large. Later in the program, I want to have you situate
1: uh, you know what if right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what this would mean for our understanding of evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get into talking about uh, the scientific inquiry process, right? Okay. Yep. Um, which I'm, I'm hearing you say some of your some of your colleagues are discarding that, right? In, mm-hmm. in your view, mm-hmm. they're starting from it can't it can't exist, so it doesn't, right? Right, exactly. Not open to. Uh, looking where the evidence uh, leads uh-huh. us. Before we get into that, uh, the, the subtitle of your book, uh, Legend Meets Science. Right. Uh, this, this you know, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, relic, hominoid does capture the imagination, of the popular culture, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore a lot of media of various, various uh, different kinds. So does that help or hinder, do you think?
0: Well, it's it, it can be a two edged sword, you know. I mean, if you reflect on the discovery of other great apes, um, that history is rife with examples of um, embellishment and uh, uh, elaboration of, of experience and so forth, exaggeration perhaps from even misidentification. Uh, not to mention the the native lore and legend that surrounds. Um, sometimes being a bit of a distraction, and uh, you know Paul Duchalier, for example, who really promoted the uh, not only the uh, existence of, but the his observations of the natural history and behavior of the gorilla was an extremely controversial figure. You know, was was accused of fraud and so forth. Um, so it's interesting. It's it, it's the experiences that I've had in in that sense are not at all unprecedented. Uh, I'm you know I'm not appealing to history in order to vindicate what I'm what I'm um, advocating, uh, uh, but on but nevertheless it, it doesn't surprise me that the type of reaction. It's if you go back and read the history of the unfolding of the discovery and understanding of the gorilla, and just substitute the word Sasquatch, the parallels are really quite remarkable. And that's of course transposed into our modern era with all of the um, uh, the, the media that we have. Uh, um, then it actually amplifies some of those challenges mm. that uh, were faced by uh, scholars, you know, a century or two ago. Mm. That, that provides you hope, I guess. That uh well, yes. I mean, my again, my goal. Uh, my uh, it's there. There's a there are several different levels, I guess. I mean, there's there's a personal fascination uh, with this, uh, you know, mystery of mysteries, <laughs> um, and and there's also a professional academic motivation uh, as a question of science to pursue this. I mean, I'm not out to, um, to uh, uh, accumulate converts or to proselytize, uh, you know, in, in the public. I'm not doing an end run around the, the scientific venue. I find many roadblocks in, uh, in um, getting the message out through the conventional scientific channels just because of the, the prejudice against the topic uh, offhand, um, but... Um, I'm I'm simply trying to present in as objective a fashion the evidence that continues to to mount. Um, uh, I I just I mean I'm so I'm at this point I'm convinced I'm accused of being a believer. And I and I reject that. I mean, the 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 moniker "true believer" is is uh, foisted on on uh, some people unjustifiably by the ideological skeptics, and, in order to discredit them. Um, but belief is. Um, you know, it, it it's connotes, at least, a position of faith, the acceptance of something in the absence of evidence. I mean, we could, we could split hairs about the semantics and definitions of, of those terms, but that's usually the, the connotation, uh, the implication that's attached. I'm, I don't believe, rather, uh, in the absence of evidence. I'm convinced by the evidence, and it's that that I'm trying to present um, since there are so few academics who are willing to openly now um, discuss these these evidences, I I also feel a certain obligation to keep that door ajar so that it doesn't get slammed shut and this uh, this be ignored or relegated entirely to the tabloid and the mm. you know into the sensational or paranormal and there certainly are those elements that uh, that are um, uh, promoted by the, the you know the non-professional uh, um, f- portion of the uh, Bigfoot enthusiast community, if you will, um, and th- and that also you know it creates uh, it creates its own set of obstacles uh, that that one in my position uh, must navigate and uh, and sort of toe that line of of the voice of reason, the voice of objectivity. Um, you know I'm reminded of that that commercial this so will date me a little bit with the little old lady in the uh in the hamburger shop opening the bun saying where's the beef <laughs> you know i'm I'm trying to make sure that there's a, <laughs> a recognizable beef patty there that at least keeps the conversation moving forward mm. This is an <clears throat> interesting uh intersection of popular culture right,
1: right. and uh and science yeah. I wonder um and, and I'm sure you know Sasquatch gets lumped in with UFOs or right. whatever it is. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the UFOs. Sure, there would be you know that captures the popular imagination as well. Uh, so on a, on a personal level, I don't know what you what you feel. You go to convention, you're next to the UFO. I don't know if that happens. It but, does.
0: Uh, it does. And I, you know, I, I used to be much more uh, cautious about uh, of crossing lines. Um, you know, when when my book was published. Uh, at that time, if you wanted to to read a book about Sasquatch and you went into the bookstore, you would usually be directed over to the New Age section. Or if you go to the library, the books were always down at that lower end of the Dewey Decimal System where there was controversial knowledge, including things like the Bermuda Triangle and crop circles and UFOs and so on. And I was quite adamant that this was a work of natural history, and I wanted it uh, cataloged as such um, and and I was uh, partially successful. If, if you look in the in the back uh, of the title page, where the information for librarians is located, it has two classifications. And according to the uh, Library of Congress system, it's uh, a work of natural history, zoology. But yet, it still got lumped in controversial knowledge. You go into Barnes and Nobles, and and where will you find my book? in the New Age section, and I'll take this up with the manager and say, this is supposed to be over in the books about animals, you know, right there next to Jane Goodall's books about primates. And, oh, this was the the response I got. Oh, you'll get twice, ten times the uh, traffic in the New Age section that you would get in the natural history. Well, that's not my objective. My objective is to reach the reader who is interested in primates, who is interested in the natural history of of, uh, of other forms of wildlife, because that's how I've approached the subject matter. So I'll sometimes discreetly move the book over into the other, other section. <laughs> but... Uh, it is kind of a dilemma,
1: right? It is. Because I could see it's you get a, a lot more readers if it's in the that's right. New uh, Age section. Yeah, you yeah. do.
0: And... Uh, so, you know, I, I have taken—I I see uh, when I present at these, um, you know, conventions that have popped up, some that are, are focused on, uh, on cryptids and some that, that look at uh, a broader spectrum of paranormal, including UFOs and got, uh, ghosts even and whatnot, um, I, I see it as an opportunity for academic outreach. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm presenting something that is scientific and if I, can, if I can make an impression on some of that audience by my presentation of data and my objective evaluation of that data and field some questions from left field and steer them back onto uh, – you know, onto the track, so to speak, at least from my perspective, and maybe that's presumptuous of me to, to say, but, but, I, but I feel that's a, a good service. That's, that's legitimate academic outreach, and so I, I make no apologies for um, attending those, uh, those conferences, those venues, and taking every opportunity to educate the public in a, in a positive way. But you didn't see this coming when you started your career. No. No, I didn't. I really didn't. And in fact, you know, there was that little moment uh, kneeling beside those footprints in southeastern Washington. Uh, I was very familiar with Dr. Grover Krantz, my predecessor, and the, the impact that his preoccupation with this question had on his career. And uh, there was that moment when the little voice in my head said, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to go down this path? But here I am staring at these at these uh, uh, footprints, the implications of which are just uh, so impactful. How could I walk away from that, uh, as a scientist? How could I how could I ignore um, um, that evidence and and uh, take the easy road and so to speak? So here I am, you know, some twenty years later, and um, it 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 has had. Um, it's had some negative uh, impact, and there's no question, but uh, I've developed a thick skin and uh, a much more realistic um, attitude about um, science and the conduct of science, uh, and scientists, <laughs> should say, maybe make it more personal in that respect. Um, and, and I think I'm better for it. I think I've, uh, I, I've lent a voice of, uh, uh, of encouragement I, in fact, I know I have. I, I see it in the upcoming generation. Um, uh, a, a real quick vignette. I had we had a, a visiting professor, who uh, was hired recently, and uh, after we made our introductions and and she was, interested in accessing some of our uh, anatomical donors for research that she was doing in, in archaeology and anthropology. There was a lull in the conversation. She reached into her handbag and said can I ask a geeky question? I said, sure. She said, would you sign my book? Hmm. And she pulled out Sasquatch Leisure Science. So here was, here was a new PhD from a very mainstream, very credible uh, program, uh, renowned program. And, uh, you know, embarking on a, uh, orthodox, if you will, uh, career. And yet she had this remarkable, uh, um, or in, this enthusiasm for this remarkable question. And, um, uh, you know, it'll be uh, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote uh, the uh, 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 Scientific Revolutions, um, you know, made the comment that sometimes it takes an entire generation to pass before a new idea can really take root. And we're, we're right at that cusp um, where the upcoming generation now is, is not, has not been wholly indoctrinated by some of the paradigms that precluded uh, an objective consideration. Um, you know, and I must qualify, you know, some of my criticisms of colleagues is not necessarily um, a personal disposition on their part, but it was the the training and indoctrination that they experienced as students, um, ideas that, that literally did not accommodate the proposition of other species of relic hominoid existing alongside us. That's changed now. That's changed, and I think we'll, talk, we'll come to that in a little bit. But, but um, we have a crop of students that are coming up. But still, the previous generation, they're the gatekeepers. They're the editors. They're the symposia organizers. You know, they're the uh, professors who, who oversee um, uh, uh, promotion and tenure decisions. And so this new generation is still, we're still about, oh, I think 10 years out before they have the freedom, really, the intellectual freedom, literally, to pursue questions like this. So, you know, I'm hoping to stick around for another couple decades to see that happen, uh, you know, barring some purely happenstance development, like a a breakthrough, uh, you know, a hunter shoots one or a semi-truck strikes one on a highway, a rural highway, or something like that happens let's
1: take a break when we come back i do want to i do want to address that question that's one of the, uh, the main arguments against existence of relic hominoid
0: right
1: never found a skeleton right. never fa- had one shot by a hundred or run over by a semi or you know we'll address that question then i want to address this important question of uh, what would this mean if we mm-hmm. stipulate the existence of relic hominoid what does that mean for understanding of evolution cetera right. cetera Uh, We'll have much more following this break. Jeff Meldrum is Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology at Idaho State University. He's author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. He's leading expert on Bigfoot or Sasquatch, or the term he prefers, relict hominoid. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot or the term my guess, Jeff Meldrum prefers, Relict Hominoid. Uh, he's professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, author of Sasquatch: Legend Meets Science. Uh, so let's treat this this question. Um, there's there's been tracks. You've seen mm-hmm. tracks, uh, sounds mm-hmm. uh, in the night. We have, we'll get into talking about the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yes. Um, but there's never been a skeleton found right. of a relic hominoid. Uh, never been one run over by a semi or shot by a... And, you know, many animals, including very elusive animals, mm-hmm. we have had such. Mm-hmm. Um, so isn't that a good argument against the well, existence of relic hominoid?
0: Yes, it it, cer- it certainly is a, a, a vexing question. And then it's a principal objection that is leveled, uh, you know, uh, by the skeptics. Um, there, there is a, an, an apologist explanation, if you will, uh, especially in light of all of the other evidence that, that continues to mount. You know, I, I sometimes chide uh, my critics who always tend to gravitate to those examples of the lack of evidence, but yet they're, they're reluctant or, or unwilling to actually engage the things we do have in hand. I, one time I was uh, speaking uh, at a, a regional university, in fact, and, and a member of that faculty um, uh, you know, took me to task on this very question. And I posed this concern, this reaction to him, and he said, uh, "He said, well, what, what type of evidence are you talking about? And I said, well, I felt like saying, weren't you listening to my presentation? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was at the dinner following. And, and I said, well, take tracks for example. His response was, oh, well, I'm not an expert in tracks." And I said, well, I am. Don't you think you might give some deference to someone who does have some authority in in, uh, uh, you know, in uh, opining on that uh, data set? Anyway, he, that changed the tenor of this conversation a little bit. Um, w- one of the common denominators of, of this kind of objection is, in my mind, their, their rarity. And I pe- people don't really, I think, um, appreciate that. Obviously, we don't have data. Uh, real systematically collected data. We, I shouldn't say that. We do have data. We have these uh, accounts and reports of eyewitnesses and and footprint finds, all of which point to a very rare, a very solitary um, uh, species. Um, uh, w- given that rarity of an animal, that if if indeed it is a hominoid, a large-bodied hominoid, and we can perhaps extrapolate from the um, scope of natural history parameters um, of known hominoids. This is a large-body, long-lived creature that reproduces infrequently, develops slowly, probably has a long lifespan, as I said, um, especially given its large size. There tends to be a positive correlation of longevity and body mass. Um, uh, No natural predators. All these things suggest, first, that death is a very... Rare event, and is as with any other animal, uh, or excuse me, any other top predator, um, that die natural deaths. They tend to secrete themselves off in some nook or cranny, and and then nature has its way. And there are decomposers, there are scavengers, there are gnaws and chewers. Uh, plus, we're uh, we're talking about an animal that tends to inhabit um, uh, wet coniferous forests in in the Western United States primarily, and uh, under those conditions, oftentimes also with uh, volcanic soils, the the uh, soil chemistry and geology tends to produce very acidic conditions that are not conducive to the preservation of bone. Um, the place we might find bone would be, say, in a stream bed or in a in a limestone cave. But again, it's a very it's a rare event where one of these creatures passes and. And, uh, you know, we, uh, you know that, that's addressing the extent uh, as far as the extinct finding fossil evidence on this continent. We don't know when this species arrived in North America. You know, people often are unaware or don't appreciate that over 75% of the mammal species that we're familiar with here are actually immigrants from Asia. And this creature probably is one of those, in which case... It could only be a resident for the past maybe a couple hundred thousand years, and so um, the prospect of finding a, a fossil record could be, you know, very slight, uh, if if at all. I've, I've discussed this with people uh, who specialize in the excavation of Pleistocene deposits, Ice Age deposits in North America. And, um, you know, one in particular has excavated numerous caves in southeastern Alaska. Seems to be an ideal place to find possibly Sasquatch remains. And uh, unfortunately, he couldn't point to any primate bones uh, from his uh, finds. But nevertheless, he was not at all concerned by that fact as, as a, a damning fact um, uh, undermining uh, the, the argument for the existence of sasquatch she wasn't at all surprised um, so you know I, I wish someone would walk in with a tooth or a jaw uh, someday and and that may may well happen uh, at any time but uh, but so far we we don't have the physical evidence that would really uh, uh, dispel the mystery the legend of, of uh, surrounded Sasquatch So, um,
1: what would this mean? I want to get into the uh, where this would fit into evolution, our understanding of evolution. Use the word "relict," right? right, Relict hominoid. Right. Um, So, what what would existence of a Sasquatch mean?
0: Well, exactly. I think I think basically all it would do is it would not rewrite the the science textbooks. It would just reiterate are now uh, as you alluded to earlier shifting paradigm of the pattern and process of human evolution back in the 60s for example when this was really capturing the attention of uh, natural historians and anthropologists and such and and, and along with the Uh, capture of the infamous Patterson Gimlin film, the prevailing paradigm in anthropology was what was called the single species hypothesis. It was the notion borrowed from ecology that only one species could occupy a niche at any given time. And so anthropologists of that day thought, well, the hominin niche is a pretty exclusive one, you know, bipedalism, braininess, and above all, culture, a material culture. So it was, it was uh, postulated that there could be only one species of hominin. So evolution of humans was seen as this, uh, this single-file march of one species giving rise to another, each supplanted successively. So that didn't allow for... The suggestion that there were other species living alongside us. Now we know, you know, many decades later, we know that uh, through through m- uh, many many discoveries uh, of of new fossil hominin species, that that family tree was not a, you know, a lodgepole pine, a single stem, but it was a bushy tree with lots of diverging branches and parallel lineages, and that many of those lineages have persisted until much more recently than than would have ever been thought of in the past. So we have, you know, um, the recently discovered Homo floresiensis, this little hobbit that's less than 50,000 years old. We have uh, Homo heidelbergensis in China that's less than 20,000 years old. We have sites of Neanderthal that are thought to be between ten and 20,000 years old. So many of these, if you, know, if you went back in time just 30,000 years, you could step out of your time machine and possibly bump into one of, of a half a dozen different species of hominin coexisting across the landscape. Why would the present be assumed to be so different, so singularly distinctive than the past, uh, the rule in the past, in the face of so much evidence that suggests that, hey, there are some of these branches that have persisted alongside us right up into the present. What You, you
1: say you talk to people who've had personal encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do we infer from those experiences and, and from the evidence about uh, Sasquatch
0: behavior? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Relic hominoid behavior, right? Well, in the, in the case of Sasquatch, it seems to be, um, you know, there's there's a lot of space. If if let's assume for a minute that this is uh, based on its bipedal behavior, some relic uh, hominin, a member of our family uh, group since the divergence from a shared ancestor with the uh, with chimpanzees, say. Then uh, there's still a lot of space between those earliest of, uh, of hominin branches and modern Homo sapiens. Uh, a lot of space in terms of intelligence in terms of tool use and and, and culture as we, we alluded to. Um, Sasquatch seems to be an animal that a species that um, makes its way through the landscape based on its brawn. It's uh, rather than its brains, and that is, it. It has, a, 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 you know, it's described as being massive, and extremely muscular, which is, you know, the 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 rule for other great apes. Our lineage has experienced a remarkable gracilization, a lightening of our skeleton and, and muscular system. So we become have become a rather lean, mean running machine as opposed to, you know, these uh, apes that, uh, well, it's said that a chimpanzee has the strength of, uh, you know, five times the strength of a man. Um, So imagine a Sasquatch that is uh, many times larger. Uh, There's no indication of material culture or home bases or fire use. Um, The types of things that we associate with the uh, emergence of the Homo lineage from its earliest uh, advent, know, some two and a half million years ago. Um, and so this creature I think is, um, is adapted to the habitat it, it, uh, lives in, uh, in, in a way that it can make a living without extensive modification of its environment, without the, the, um, uh, development of um, of modified tools beyond, you know, the opportunistic hammer stone or, or um, brandishing of a stick or or, or such, um, and uh, you know that's remarkably consistent across, again, across decades. Uh, and and uh, stories that emerged from a period when our understanding of the evolution of hominins and what it was that really distinguished the Homo lineage uh, was uh, was really understood or had developed uh, to the point that it has uh, today. Um, that that's what I find really remarkable is that uh, you know if this is just a, a bunch of stories, if this is nothing nothing more than a uh you know a, a manifestation of, of a mythological entity how is it that it it, it can that it continues uh, or it has maintained this consistency and we find our modern concepts of human evolution converging on those very concepts in a remarkably lockstep manner now I mean that that's a fascinating question in and of itself I think
1: Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. Uh, let's talk about a, a bit about that. We'll have <clears throat> about 10 minutes here to talk about that. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jeff Meldrum. He is professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. And uh, just to tease this before the break, Professor Meldrum, um, you know, if you're talking about an elusive creature, mm-hmm. you have other kinds of evidence. And mm-hmm. some people claim uh, you know sightings it would be helpful to have a film mm-hmm. and but the film is controversial mm-hmm. um, and that's the Patterson Gimlin film which I think most of us have seen um, so let's talk about that following following very, the break very good Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have reached our last segment with Jeff Meldrum. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. He's author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. He's a leading expert on Bigfoot or Sasquatch, or the term he prefers, relict hominoid. I understand, Professor, that uh, the main focus will be the Patterson-Gimlin film. I think uh, most of us, not all of us, have seen this. It's up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Fairly short. Mm Mm-hmm. Sixty uh, seconds, 60 seconds, and what you see sort of through the trees is a very large um, creature, mm-hmm. hairy, mm-hmm. Lo- you know, long arms, but upright, right? Uh, right. You know, s- striding through the, uh, you know, through the forest, right? Um, so, uh, tell us briefly right. how this came about. Then I sure. want to talk about sort of the ins and outs of, of.
0: Uh, I think your view is it's legitimate anyway. Exactly, we'll yeah. S- uh, tell us about how this came about. Right. Well, an important point to make, too, is that uh, while you say most people have seen it, oftentimes that that uh, is limited to what they've seen on television. And, and usually these documentaries have a, a, a licensed uh, copy of the film that they utilize – and uh, quite honestly it's a very poor quality copy that they're provided and it has you know all sorts it's riddled with with the scratches and and blemishes and dirt and so forth of the copy that it was uh, it was made from but that VHS tape is i think still the format that is provided um, is deteriorated, and of course, the the networks think that's great because it gives it this very campy feeling and this very mysterious. Uh, but it perpetuates some of the misnomers, like um, you know, the film has become almost a meme for anything that's that's blurry and indistinguishable, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and and many jokes have been made about that, and and that is uh, far from the case. And I'll I'll share some images and some copies. Of the film that um, that uh, will actually I think stun the viewer at the quality, but this uh, dates back to 1967. Roger Patterson um, uh, kind of got the bug. Uh, He was uh, sort of a jack of all trades, had many different interests and 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 donned many different hats, um, and uh, got it in his mind that he wanted to uh, try to capture uh, uh, some film of this creature, or at least. His initial reason for going down there was to film some footprints that had been discovered about a month earlier. It took him some time to get his effects in, in order and to recruit uh, uh, some assistance from Bob Gimlin, who was very critical in, in that regard. Um, they had patrolled the, the area for s- uh, several weeks. And then on this particular day went up this uh, one uh, uh, creek bottom, and uh, their, their view and, and probably the scent from the horses was obscured by a very large crow's nest, a big accumulation of, uh, of debris from a, a previous seasonal flood that had scoured out part of that uh, creek bottom. As they rounded that obstruction, suddenly the horses caught sight of this creature and uh, reacted. As you might expect, uh, Patterson's horse reared and fell on its side. He was able to extricate himself quite nimbly and grabbed the camera from the saddlebag and bolted across the creek in the direction of this creature that had been standing you know, a mere 40 feet away and now was quickly receding uh, and retreating, that is, up, up the, the creek bottom. Uh, he yelled to his partner, "Cover me," <laughs> because it was uh, certainly an intimidating figure they saw. You know, nearly seven feet tall and probably weighed between seven and eight hundred pounds, and uh, uh, muscles rippling under that hair-covered skin. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, the rest is history. Sixty seconds of uh, of uh, of admittedly. Uh, gyrating film footage as he ran across holding this camera by hand. He uh, actually ran into the sandbar which was about elevated about three feet up above the creek Um, since he was uh, looking through that small viewfinder he ran into it which dropped him to his knees and then you get that very nice uh, uh, stable image of this creature um, um, moving across the sandbar, turning to Briefly glare back at it at the intrusion on on uh, her business and and then retreat off into the into the woods. Mm. We think it uh, this was female. It was female. Mm-hmm. It, we assume it was female, given the apparent breasts mm-hmm. and the more gracile outline of her footprint that measured about fourteen and a half to fifteen inches in length, about the same size as the footprints I I witnessed in ninety six. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's the the assumption that it was a female. Mm. Now, I, I
1: could imagine that as you're analyzing the film, you're I mean, looking at many things, but you're looking at the movement.
0: Right. I would guess, right. so does that fit with right the movement and the foot uh, and the footprints? Yeah, definitely. And it was it was fortunate that not only did Patterson cast a right and the left, a very clear example, almost almost too good. and that was part of the problem. He looked for the cleanest, clearest, flattest, un, um, least deformed footprint uh, of a right and a left. And uh, you know these creatures do not have a longitudinal arch as we have, a very recent adaptation actually in human evolution. Uh, and so the foot looks remarkably flat. and some of the authorities at the time examining these casts, said they looked too much like, you know, just carved wooden feet out of a plank of wood. Um, In addition to those two, however, uh, an investigator from Canada, Bob Titmuss, came down within about 10 days of the event and cast 10 footprints in succession regardless of their quality, which was a tremendous boon to the to the data set because he preserved then the those dynamic features that I had described earlier uh, witnessing in the footprints I examined, which were so impressive, which spoke to the spontaneity and the animation of the footprints instead of giving the impression of just <coughs> wooden stompers strapped to someone's boots, you know, stomped in the sand. Um, so if I had nothing but the footprints to go on, I would already be quite convinced of the credibility of this film, but then to combine the tracks with the track maker to actually observe the kinematics, the movements of this creature, to um, to uh, appreciate the dimensions, the, the girth, the size um, and details of anatomy. I, you know, I'll show this, I teach human gross anatomy, and I'll show this to my students sometimes, um, just as an exercise in identifying landmarks of surface anatomy. and starting from the, you know, the attachment of the trapezius on the back of the skull um, down to the flexibility of the foot through the mid-tarsal joint. All From from head to toe, there are just feature after feature of consistent, remarkable anatomy that you would not expect to see in just a man in a fur suit, mm-hmm. as it's so often attributed.
1: We'll have to leave it there. We're, yeah. we're out of time. I'm, Jeff Meldrum is Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology at Idaho State University, author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for the chance to talk. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.